Good afternoon. I hope everyone is doing well. It's Samaj McDowell, and I would like to welcome you back to the Geopolitical Pivot Podcast. First and foremost, I want to thank everybody that supported this podcast since its inception last year. And it's really, really, really great to see that there's a lot of people interested in the new um, means of operations, the modus operandi of the current global international system as we're gearing to really uncharted territory quite quite frankly to be honest where we're returning in a sense to truly a multipolar a multi-dynamic international based system but even calling it that is very vague in in some degrees because this multipolar contraption has some unique characteristics quite frankly in its development for the first time in centuries really at least the 1600s we have power sources two predominant power sources that are not concentrated on the, the much more Western traditional sides of the European continent. It's fascinating. Those those two those two sources of power are growingly concentrated in two periphery states if we're looking at it from the Macander model. You have China, who's on the, the periphery uh, I guess state a periphery state of the Eurasian heartland. And then you have the United States, where although uh, the origins of the United States is Western uh, European origin is geographic development and its sources of power is not based on the the the, the European um, continent I guess um, with that being said I know that you know, we've talked heavily we as in the world have talked heavily about the rise of China and what it could mean for the United States. Not even just the United States, but the continuation of the dominance of Western-based morals, traditions, and concepts derived from the development of the Western civilization um, that expanded through you know the period of globalization, which isn't a natural, which isn't a contemporary process or phenomenon. The process of globalization. At least in my understanding of humanity started with the dawn of technological innovations for agriculture. So going back to Mesopotamia and, you know, through the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, etc., etc., so on and so forth. But we really see the concept of globalization with uh, at the end of World War II, 1944, Brent Woods Conference. But that's not what this episode is about, in a sense. Uh, this, I guess, I should say season premiere for the Geopolitical Pivot has everything to do with one of the major pillars of modern Chinese political and military thought processes that are not talked about as much as it should be. And the reason why I say that is because you know, we, we know about the art of war. We know about unrestricted warfare. We know about the, these concepts. We don't pay any mind 
to, at least in my opinion, one of the more pressing and much more relevant books, really, that kind of highlights the game that the Chinese military strategy and overall strategic thinking likes to play. And that comes from a book called The 36 Stratagems. Now, The 36 Stratagems is often accredited to Sun Tzu uh, because there are some some similarities in some of the the rhetoric that's utilized or even some of the pros and um, tactics that are recommended. However, the 36 stratagems kind of brings up a point or a few points of historical um, events that occurred over 100 years after Sun Tzu has passed away. Uh, the Art of War was written between about 475 and 221 BCE, so in the span of uh, 255 years, while the the 36 Stratagems was written after the fall of the Han Dynasty, which, you know, that particular dynasty, which is kind of accredited to bringing in one of the more flourishing parts of Chinese Renaissance, Enlightenment, military innovation, um, economic development, uh, unification, solidarity, uh, national identity. Uh, once the fall of the Han Dynasty occurred, you had just you had this period of time for about 369 years of just full instability, civil wars, um, nomadic migrations, non-Han Chinese kingdoms, what were called the Wuhu states. Then you had a period of 16 kingdoms, which lasted from the year 304 to 439. Them, the six dynasties that kind of overlapped with with that um, was from like two, the year 220 to the year 589 AD. But really, the 36 stratagems is, the, is believed to come from a period called the the Northern Southern Dynasties period, which is a span of 169 years um, from 420 to the year 589 uh, AD. And all of that's kind of within that time frame of the year 220, which is the fall of the Han Dynasty, and the year 589, which is the end of the Northern Southern Dynasties period. But during this time, we've had they've had significant advances in certain military technologies um, or even operations, such as utilizing stirrups to develop heavy cavalry additions to the military. As well as advancements into medicine, astronomy, mathematics, cartography, uh, etc. Um, the 36 stratagems, at least a paperback volume, wasn't discovered until 1941. Um, at this time, uh, Mao kind of essentially solidified himself as the head or the leader of the the Chinese Communist Party as they were fighting the Kuomintang. Um, Kai Shek. Um, you know, the Chinese Civil War doesn't end until 1949. So the 36 Stratagems was found in a 
a Chinese Communist Party, uh, at least a, Ch a Chinese Communist-dominated province in central China, and it was put to publications and you know, local publications. But it didn't really come into public view until September 16th, 1961, once it was printed in the, the, the Chinese Communist Party's Guangming Daily Newspaper. Um, that's when we kind of really, that's when it kind of came to surface. But then we have that background information. I think it's really important to, before we kind of transition into the breakdown of this book, what is the difference really between, why is it called the 16 stratagems rather than the 16 strategies? In some transliterations, they like to call it this. The, you know the 36 strategies and it's inherently wrong uh, it's very important especially when looking at ancient Chinese uh, text uh, as well as just even the Chinese the, the, the mystique behind the Chinese culture is to really try to translate as accurately as possible because words matter, not even just words, but also graphs and visualiz graphics and visualizations matter when it comes to the, the philosophical um, foundations of the Chinese civilization that permeates their strategic thinkings and their, their centralized plannings. We, all, we should all know really what a strategy is. It's something for long-term planning to obtain success in achieving a particular goal or goals over time. So you hear military plannings, um, five-year plans in communist uh, regimes. Uh, we hear things on national security strategies or policy strategies where we're trying to look at the assessments and try to achieve what it is that we're setting our aims for. But that's not what a stratagem is. A stratagem is a ruse, deception. There are tactics, particular tactics that can be utilized in order to gain the advantage within a manufactured strategic space that to be utilized against an enemy or adversary. And that comes with understanding the differences um, between the strategic thinking within Western civilization, so your you know your Niccolo Machiavellis, your your Clausewitz, your Bismarcks, uh, your George Washingtons, um, your Julius Caesar and Hannibal, etc., um, Alexander the Great, in comparison to uh, classical. Chinese strategic thinking where deception is seen as a demonstration of intellectual superiority. If I'm able to deceive you, then I should be able to not only win the war and obtain victory, but also to achieve my interests um, long term. So stratagem and strategy, they can work together, but they're two different things. The stratagem is to establish their strategic spaces or at least to gain the initial advantage to then implement the strategy. 
And I think that's what's that is what is um, it's attributing to a a meltdown of the Western capabilities of strategic thinking when dealing with a non-Western peer competitor to the United States. It's a completely different uh, collective psyche that we're trying to crack the code on. But this is why I, I'm advocating for the reading of 36 Stratagems. Because it, it's, it allows you to start cracking that, really that Da Vinci code to Chinese strategic, not just planning, but the strategic mindset that goes back thousands of years. It's one thing, and this is also highlighted in the stratagems, that especially with the current mood of Chinese nationalism that really came out of the American accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Bosnia in the 90s during the uh, the Bosnian War is that now there is this really it was already occurring but now there's this huge veneration of the Chinese national spirit and identity um, paying homage to the history of China before Mao Zedong so looking at classical China looking at the celestial kingdom of China the middle kingdom China um, or even looking at Chinese nationalist rhetoric from Sun Yat-sen. Um, that has become the, the premise now for the Chinese strategic thought. So the best way for the United States or even any individual that is interested in understanding the strategic mindset, not just the, the political framework, but also the military and the, the global uh, interest and strategy of China, you have to look at a few books. You have to look at The Art of War. You have to look at 36 Stratagems. You have to understand what the under the all under heaven system is. Um, Tian Tia, as well as Unrestricted Warfare. Um, those, th those four books are essential to understanding what it is the Chinese military and strategic and political, domestic and external uh, agenda is inherently, fundamentally, at the very core of the process. So with that being said, I think what I'm going to do is that we're going to essentially, at least today, look at three of the stratagems because the, the entirety of the book is broken down into six different ones. And then, hopefully tomorrow, I will then do another episode on the three that I don't cover today. And then, throughout the episodes, we'll essentially tie in some current affairs on where these stratagems are really coming into being. So then we can kind of highlight, well, this is literally the manifestation of classical Chinese military tactics and, and stratagems. The strategy and stratagem. Okay. So with that being said, the, the breakdown of the book is it's not, it's not overly 
difficult. It's a very, very, very easy uh, read. Each stratagem is about a page or two. And it's it's written in very generalized terms, as we will see in a few moments. But it's in a way where you are really able to understand the applicability, the practicality, the logic, and the the rational reasoning behind these these at this book of advice essentially on where and how to implement them either in isolation or in conjunction with other strategies you can use these interchangeably so the the six break the six parts of the book there's the stratagems when commanding superiority stratagems for confrontation stratagems for attack Stratagems for confused situations, stratagems for gaining ground, stratagems for desperate straits. And depending on the the book that you get, those titles for the chapters, they'll be fairly different depending on the, the transliterations that you get. But the overall substance is, is the same. So for today, we're going to start off with the stratagem for let's see I'll say let's do this one let's do a stratagems for attack I think that's actually very 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 imperative to understand with some of the things that's going on today and this I'm going to start it off with the second stratagem where it's transliterated to mean to borrow a corpse to resurrect the soul and it's to revive something from the past by giving it a new purpose or reinterpret it to your advantage. You would take an institution, a technology, a method, or even an ideology that has been forgotten or discarded and appropriate it for your own purpose. Revive something from the past by giving it a new purpose or bring to life old ideas, customs, or traditions and reinterpret them to fit your purposes. Which is very, very fitting. You, you don't even have to go back to the um, the, the 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 Ming Dynasty, the Han, the the Qin Dynasty. You don't even have to go thousands of years back to see that manifestation. You go back to to Mao. Uh, Mao spent about twenty years in the the, the predominantly peasant rural parts of China to really not just evaluate the strategic environment situations of the Chinese peasants in relation to the Japanese that were invading as well as the Kuomintang that were primarily situated in the much more urban parts of the country but Mao understood that yes you know communism is the way however it's not the Soviet based industrial worker um, oriented version of communism that would essentially assist in the liberation of not just China or the Chinese peasants but also the Asia Pacific um, peasants as well so we would that eventually be seen with manifestations in the Vietnam War with um, the Viet Cong as well as in Laos and Cambodia and 
Malaysia, etc. Um, with Mao essentially understanding that Soviet-based industrialized orient oriented working class oriented is not really the way to go when it comes to liberation of the Chinese peasant essentially he he crafted a unique strain which we never call Maoism or is it it's essentially peasantry based revolution uh, guerrilla warfare a protracted warfare um, when he wrote his book on, on guerrilla warfare in 1937 1938 um, as kind of demonstrating the need for a full encompassing revolution that's protracted and it goes in three different tiers which I will also do an episode on uh, on guerrilla warfare on and the the significance or even in that implementation on a Chinese military thought and strategy but we see moving on with the Soviet Union and China where they essentially utilize the notions of communism but then revived it not necessarily revived it but essentially appropriated it and then added on their own additions for peasantry revolution it worked you have the People's Republic of China but then we also saw that with that same riff in 1968 1969 when you started to have the the, the Sino-Soviet border skirmishes China started to pivot away from the Soviet Union and they catered to the United States which culminated in the 1972 Beijing arrival of Nixon and Kissinger but at that point Mao also started to change his um, some of his rhetorics and started to incorporate a little bit more of a Chinese nationalist in order to nationalism in order to maintain control over the overall general populace. Um, and then we saw that highlighted with Deng Xiaoping. But interesting enough, after the Bosnian War occurred and the United States mistakenly attacked the Chinese embassy in Belgrade the there was a sudden major shift down to Chinese nationalism not necessarily you know Maoism or Chinese-based communism uh, since Deng Xiaoping started his um, state capitalism ventures in the 1980s and then well on to the 90s even after he stepped down after Tiananmen Square we saw after the the Bosnian War that the education and the academic rhetoric of China started to veer towards times before Mao and kind of highlighted the Middle Kingdoms, the Celestial Kingdom, the the contributions of, that China provided to the world for global development, well, the technological innovation, trading, uh, the Silk Road, um, etc., where you had a lot more now Chinese nationalist hardliners revealing themselves within the military, within the CCP, 
and across civil society and that it's the time to start to implement the all under heaven um, system philosophical system which is uh, something i would definitely would do a separate podcast episode on because it's super super fascinating but it's also the protocol that xi jinping is looking to fulfill by 2050 um and that's deeply deeply uh, imperative above other than that with the borrow a corpse to resurrect the soul you also have some you have another stratagem called lure the tiger down from the mountain which is lure an opponent away from his field of advantage thus separating him from his source of strength never directly attack an opponent whose advantage is derived from its position instead lure him away from his position thus separating him from his source of strength so essentially if we look at the current situation in south china sea um, as well as even with taiwan we can kind of see the dichotomy of what it may necessarily mean of luring the United States away from its source of strength when one of the sources of strength for the United States is its Navy. However, if you look at the posturing of the Chinese and their preferred advantages, which is primarily a land base despite now having the largest Navy in the world, not by a matter of tonnage, which is still the United States, but just by the number of just ships built um they have more than the united states china utilizes a anti-access area denial framework within the first island chain especially uh, when it comes to taiwan and with this uh, luring in a hypothetical scenario but also very possible plausible scenario by luring the u.s navy into a particular geographic environment that is in range of uh, supersonic subsonic and even hypersonic anti-ship missiles ballistic missiles uh, sam systems um air superior chinese air superiority operations um submarines and, you know missile boats etc etc you're luring your opponent away from his field of advantage, which for the United States is it's not just the mainland, um, but it's also areas like Guam, Hawaii, uh, our bases and logistical facilities within um, the Philippines and Japan and South Korea, etc. Um, China is attempting to push the United States out of the first island chain and hopefully eventually out of the second island chain and maybe keep the United States at bay with the third island chain, which is essentially Polynesia. Um, at least a little bit outside of Polynesia. Uh, if that was able to happen and occur, then essentially the Asia Pacific would become at the mercy of the Chinese Navy as well as the, the PLAAF. The People's Liberation Army Air Force. Uh, they've already demonstrated a few weeks ago that the Chinese frigates are able to reach Alaska. Um, that's a grave concern. And then with the Chinese military logistics, uh, quote-unquote, I should say, logistical facilities in uh, Djibouti, um, their port in Piraeus, 
um, their maritime port in Sri Lanka, attempting to create the Thai Canal to get around the Malacca Strait, trying to establish uh, connections to the Indian Ocean through Burma, etc. We see that China is looking to lure the United States from its current positions of defensive posture to put them on the offense and to remove them, at least logistically, from their sources of strength. And that is intended to fill into the next stratagem, which is, you know, to catch something first, set it free. And what the Chinese mean by this is that a cornered prey will often mount a final desperation attack. To prevent this, you let the enemy believe he still has a chance for freedom. This may also take the form of a trick and follow ploy where letting an enemy go and observing their subsequent actions may give you more information about their capabilities and intentions. His will to fight is thus dampened by his desire to escape. When in the end of when in the end the freedom is proven a falsehood, the enemy's morale will be defeated and he will surrender without a fight. And part of this is also in the art of war in chapter three when you're talking about to fight or the deployment of a stratagem. Not a strategy, but a stratagem, a ruse. You don't want to necessarily make the United States feel that they are cornered thus prompting a major uh, attack of desperation. But what you want to do is that you want to provide your adversary the illusion that there is a chance of de-escalation. There's an illusion of being able to be brought to the diplomatic table and that there's a freedom of negotiation and with regards to a particular situation in order to avoid war. We see this all the time. And we've seen that we saw this under Trump. We've seen this recently with Biden, with his uh, virtual conference call with Xi Jinping. We've seen this even when Biden was vice president for Obama. Um, it's, it's very apparent. I mean, to a degree, North Korea does the same thing. Where we're going to give you the illusion that we're able and willing to have the go negotiations regarding the denuclearization of the of the Korean Peninsula but at the same time what North Korea means by denuclearization means that the United States also has to remove their uh, nuclear submarines and nuclear capable bombers and uh, you know, agreements to not utilize potential ICBMs that can target um, the Korean Peninsula and to allow North Korea to essentially dictate the unification of the Korean Peninsula. It's the same type of idea with uh, with China. I mean, currently we want to talk about we'll continue the conversation on nuclear weapons. China is looking to produce uh, up to obtaining 1,000 uh, or an arsenal of 1,000 nuclear warheads. So they're going to provide the United States and even Russia with the illusion that they are still a freedom of negotiation for a trilateral nuclear um, that's a de-escalation to, you know, as a way, a new start program essentially to 
reduce nuclear stockpiles and to avoid any any type of nuclear proliferation. But by doing this, China is observing potential actions or statements or posturings that the United States may abide by or seek to implement. And that provides Beijing with a whole lot more information in regards to our willingness, our capabilities, and our capacities. Way more than it would provide them for um, if there was direct war. Direct war would have happened. That is utterly dangerous. Utterly dangerous. And then the final strategy, one of the final stratagems that I want to talk about, at least when it comes to the stratagems for attack, is to, it's called to capture the bandits and, and to capture their leader. If the enemy's army is strong but is allied to the commander only by money or threats, then take aim at the leader. The rest of the army will disperse or come over to your side. If, however, they are allied to the leader through loyalty, then beware. The army can continue to fight on after his death out of vengeance. And this one is very interesting because you have to look at the when we're talking about to capture the bandits, I capture their leader. You don't want to think of it just in the understanding of a singular military um, in this case, especially in the modern world. Or there's a lot of supranational organizations that deal with um, regional or even hemispheric defense. In looking at and by looking at this and applying it to the modern world, especially in, re, in relations to China and the United States, you could think of the leader in the army, um, and, al- and the the enemy's army being strong, but the al- but is allied to the commander only by money or threats. That is that could be seen as a direct illustration of the current state of affairs of NATO. Or even the strategic partnerships of the United States in the Indo-Pacific, Indo-PACOM. And so for the Chinese, it's, well, if they're only allied, the commander being the United States, by money or threats, then target the leader. And the reason why is because then, and this is not always a guarantee, as we saw uh, with the, the U.S., U.K., New Zealand, Australia uh, partner strategic partnership and providing Australia with some technological assistance blueprints for nuclear-based uh, submarines. But still, there's a strong possibility that if by taking aim at the leader and demonstrating the weaknesses of the leader, that will fundamentally uh, diminish the morale or the cohesiveness of the the allied forces if it's only based on money if the united states is providing money or for the bill or there's based on the continuation of a mutual threat that endangers everyone in this particular army if those cracks are demonstrated then there's a possibility depending on public opinion and a, a lot of other factors that the the alignments may begin to shift over time. And if there's one thing we know about 
the Chinese is that they are much more long-term goal-oriented rather than short-term transactions. But this, this statement goes uh, further. If, however, they are allied to the leader through loyalty, then beware the army can continue to fight on after his death out of vengeance. So basically what that's stating is that even, let's say, the China goes after the United States or a particular peer competitor goes after the United States and the United States loses, well, if the allied forces of the United States are allied not by money or not by threat or a similar threat, but by legitimate loyalty, then the war fever of said allied armies within this unified collective multilateral army will continue to fight, but even at a higher at a higher momentum to avenge the falling of the leader. And this is also a demonstration of China's desire to combat the um, to combat the United States under the conf under the um, um, what do I want to call it the the spectrum or the th the threshold of, of violence and conflict directly with the United States. Um, because then also that deteriorates their economic and financial standings, uh, which is something they desperately need, especially when it comes to saturating, saturating European markets. And in addition to that, it does not allow for China to continue to seek access into American-based uh, or American-grown companies positioned in Silicon Valley or even in London. Um, it doesn't allow them access into emerging technologies or massive R&D projects within the American-based private sector, access to education and uh, facilities and top-tier scientists and engineers, etc. Um, hence why China sits back in their patient with the implementation of these stratagems um, as a means to observe and then establish their own strategic spaces as a way to avoid confrontation, but also to gradually replace the United States towards the implementation of the, of the all under heaven um, global order system. Uh, with that, I've been talking for 38 minutes. Jesus. Okay, well, here's what we're going to do instead. Each day, as if the next five days, I will talk about some of the stratagems from each of these books or each of these parts of the overall 36 stratagems. So today we covered the stratagems for attack. Um, tomorrow we can, we'll discuss stratagems when commanding superiority. Um, then we can kind of do a recap tomorrow on the stratagems of attack with more um, modern day examples of the Chinese strategies and how they're manifesting through this. And then we'll go into commanding superiorities. With that being said, I'm so glad to be back. And I'm looking forward to producing even more uh, content for your uh, enjoyment. Thank you all for tuning in. And until next time, peace. <laughs>